following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. About five years ago, I was uh, leading a trip from FBC to Israel and we had an incredible Bible teacher, Doug Bookman, who led the trip. So I function mainly as the tour guide. And tour guides have a lot of responsibility. A lot of times it's safety. But also it's getting on time and being on time and getting on the bus and getting off the bus. And when you have 50 people who are all taking that last final photo, getting off and on the bus can sometimes be extremely challenging. So we did a lot of preparation before we went, we talked to them a lot about being on time and how important that was. And so much so, I, I kind of probably beat it into their heads a little bit too much uh, because we explained to them that when they're a minute late, they're not just 60 seconds late, they're actually 50 minutes late because they just spent 50 people's one minute. You know what I'm saying? And so all of a sudden they invested all that because they were late because they wanted the last minute photo. So we drove it into them, be on time, get to the bus. 11 o'clock, be on the bus, in your seat. That was very important. We wanted them on the bus so we could get to the next site, etc. Interesting enough, there was a couple times, only twice, that actually one couple was a little bit late. And they were about 30 seconds, 15 seconds late, and they knew they were late, and then the entire day, every time I looked at them, they did this. They went, oh. Like this, this massive shame and guilt was overwhelming them. And halfway through the day, I went up to them at their seat. I looked at them, and I go, yes, you were late. I don't care. I'm just glad you're on the bus, okay? Get over it. We're friends. We're having a great time. It was an amazing trip. And I said, look, I'm just thankful that you're on the bus, that's what matters to me. You're here, okay? Interesting enough, that's exactly what James is concerned about, and myself as well. We want to make sure that you're on the bus headed to eternity. And the apex of everything that James has been teaching and everything he will teach after this paragraph that we're looking at, and if you're new with us, we're working our way through James verse by verse. We have now arrived at chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, and that paragraph itself is the apex of the book of James. This is the main thing that he wanted to say. This is the focal point of his emphasis. And what's he telling us here is this. He's telling us that faith without works is what? It's dead. He's telling you that if you have true belief, you will show it in how you behave. If you have true belief. James will say that if you are a so-called Christian and you have faith in Christ, but it doesn't affect your lifestyle, a lifestyle of works, a lifestyle of manifesting Christ in particular ways, then you have a fake faith. You have a false faith. You have a faith that does not save. You have a faith that will lead you to eternal torment in hell. It is the focus of what he's trying to say. And you're saying, Chris, this seems so dramatic. Listen, Jesus told us multiple times that there are people that he is concerned about that do not have a genuine faith. They would say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name in Matthew 7? And he will say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. They were deceived. You say, oh, that's just a few people. Look at the first word in that verse. It says, many will say to me, many will say to me, that, that we are live in a day where you know family and friends, they will say to you, I'm a Christian. And in your heart, you're going, something's off here. I'm not seeing Christ manifested in you. Something concerns me about that. Well, it concerns James too, and he's going to explain it in this particular chapter and in this particular paragraph of this unique, very pointed book. I find it very interesting, don't you, that the first two books that were written in the New Testament were written on opposite extremes. James is worried about making sure that salvation is manifested with works. Galatians, by Paul, is making sure that you don't add works to the gospel. That seems opposite to you, doesn't it? One, James says you are justified by works, 
And then Paul says, you are justified by faith. Who's right? Uh, There are liberals who would say the Bible contradicts itself. This is an error in the Scripture. But what you don't understand is that they're looking at salvation from different perspectives. And they're trying to emphasize different elements of salvation. So how do we solve that issue? Well, one of my favorite commentators, D. Edmund Hebert, helps us understand, listen carefully to his brilliant comparison between faith and works and between the writings of James and the writings of Paul. Look at it, it's in your outline there, and I will read it out loud. There is no actual conflict between the teaching of James and Paul. Their teachings run parallel, but do not cross. They are not antagonists facing each other with crossed swords. They stand back to back, both confronting different foes of the gospel, different enemies of the gospel. Paul is combating a Jewish legalism that insisted upon the need for works in order to be justified. In order to be saved, you had to have works. He's combating that. James insists that the need for works in the lives of those who have been justified by faith. Paul insists that no man can ever win justification or salvation through his own efforts, but must accept by faith the forgiveness that God offers him in Christ Jesus. James demands that the man or woman who already claims to stand in a right relationship with God through faith must, by a life of good works, demonstrate that he or she has become a new creature in Christ. Both Paul and James fully and thoroughly agree. Paul is rooting out works that exclude and destroyed saving faith. James was stimulating a sluggish faith that minimized that results of saving faith in daily life. Now get this, both James Both Paul view good works as proof of faith. Proof of faith, not the path to salvation. Are you getting this? James will tell you today that if your faith does not demonstrate itself in the way that your life and you live everyday life, then your faith is false. Today, we will exposit the first half of this paragraph, verses 14 to 20, and it talks, are you ready, about false faith. The next verses, verses 21 to 26, talk about true faith, and that will be next week. But today, he's exposing and bringing to the surface the false faith, one that we see very, very prevalent today. James will expose what he calls a dead faith, a false faith, a unsaving faith, a faith that will not bring you to heaven, but one that will result in eternal torment and hell. So read aloud with me this passage, verses 14 to 20, and we'll look at this passage this week, and then the second half of the paragraph next week. Let's read it out loud together, together, if you would please. Verse 14, here we go. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now make certain that you understand the theological underpinnings of this passage. So let me give you three truths that we know doctrinally from this passage and from the New Testament. Letter A, genuine salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Can I hear an amen to that? It's amen. You do not work for, you do not even choose salvation. You are chosen, you are called, and Christ does the work. You don't work for it, you're chosen, you basically, and Christ does the work. You were dead, you were blind, you were condemned, and Christ makes you alive so you can see and forgiven. He does that. In fact, salvation is a gift from God given by God to undeserving rebels who resist his will. 
Warren Wearsby writes about this great gift of faith, and he says, faith is a key doctrine in the Christian life. The sinner is saved by faith, Ephesians 2. The believer must walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11. Whatever we do apart from faith is sin, Romans 14. Someone has said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but faith is obeying in spite of consequence. When you read Hebrews 11, you meet men and women who acted on God's word no matter what price they had to pay. Faith is not some kind of nebulous feeling that we work up. Faith is confidence in God's word that it's true and conviction that acting on that word will bring his blessing. Salvation is through faith. What God does is he regenerates you. That gives you the ability to respond in faith. And when that faith is salvation faith, then that faith will issue forth in works. It all starts with God changing you, saving you. Letter B, genuine salvation always produces works, the fruit of a transformed life. Now, MacArthur writes about James here, and he says this, it is possible that James, this section in particular, was written to Jews who had jettisoned the works righteousness of Judaism, but instead had embraced the mistaken notion that since righteous works and obedience to God's will were not efficacious for salvation, they were then not necessary at all. They jumped to that conclusion. Thus, they reduced faith to a mere mental assent to the facts about Christ, end quote. Listen, as you deal with family and friends, help them understand they have no right to believe they are saved if they do not say a change in their own life. They don't have any right to, to basically claim that they're saved. A sinner is saved by faith without works, but true saving faith will always result in works. You are saved by faith without works, but when it is true saving faith, it will result in works. Being a Christian is not merely a matter of what you say, but it's also not just with your lips there. It is involving what you do with your life. And the statement there in verse 14, you look at it, when it says, can that faith save him, I really ought to read, can that kind of faith save him, James is exposing a false faith, a false faith, a faith that is mere intellectual assent and not a faith of life dependence. And listen, you don't have to show your faith in Christ by only doing great deeds of achievement that are talked about in like Hebrews 11. What he's saying here is that faith is a mere basically expression uh, by the things you say and do in everyday life. I meet people all the time whose faith is questionable. All the time. Sometimes in a restaurant, sometimes on Sunday morning, some of my relatives, and I know you do too. Is their faith factual or is it fake, false? Is it real or is it rogue? Is it legitimate or is it a lie? And you should ask those questions of your own faith. James is going to be blunt. And hasn't he been blunt? He is so direct. He will tell you that knowing and accepting the truth about Jesus Christ is not saving faith. Did you catch that? Knowing and accepting the truth about Jesus Christ is not saving faith. Saving faith means that you have been regenerated you're given faith that will work. Christ has changed your life. Christ has caused you to be born again. Out of that faith comes then works. Out of that life transformation. Those with saving faith know Christ personally. They follow Christ faithfully. They desire to obey His word daily. They love Christ passionately, even more than their spouse and children and parents. John MacArthur writes this. Look at this quote. I put it in your outline. We must clearly and forcefully counter the deception and the delusion that knowing and accepting the truth about Jesus Christ is equivalent to having saving faith in Him. That's delusion. Are you getting this? This is really running contrary to what we see in life today. Somebody says, I'm a Christian. You go, oh, it must be a Christian. And God says no in his word. He says, if you have saving faith, it is going to be that you are a different person and there's going to be fruit that comes out of your life. That's what he's saying. Not just that you have a mental assent 
that Jesus died for my sins. Not just that you say, oh, I believe that Jesus is God. Not that. And you're going to see James is going to strip those thoughts bare in this passage. Please do not take my word for it. Look at what he says, and that's what we're going to expose in this text. Listen, let us see another third underlying truth of this passage. Genuine security is a certain doctrine, but assurance of salvation is a life direction. Okay? Every born-again Christian is secure in their salvation. Once saved, always saved is true. You, no one can snatch you out of the hands of Christ, John 10. Christ is the one who saved you. Christ is the one who holds you secure. Those he chooses, he glorifies. He's going to bring those he chooses to heaven, Romans 8. But the experience of security is called assurance of salvation. And assurance of salvation is only manifested in the direction of your life that you're walking towards Christ in obedience to his word. Are you getting it? Listen, watch up here. You're moving towards Christ, you have assurance of salvation. The moment you start moving away, and as a way of life, you begin to disobey Him. As a way of life, I'm not talking about one time, I'm talking about a way of life, weeks and months. You begin to move in this direction, you will lose your assurance. Now, you may be saved, you may be secure, but we don't know that and you don't know that. The only time we'll know that is if you repent and you begin to walk in obedience. So it is God's determination to hold you secure, but assurance is the manifested through your lifestyle, through your direction of life. Are you getting it? That's what the New Testament teaches. We know we're saved when we move in His direction, when we want to please Him instead of pleasing ourselves, when we move towards Him and not away from Him. And do you want to obey? Do you want to gather? Do you want to serve? Do you want to worship? Do you want to give? Is that the direction of your life? Or are you indifferent? Are you exclusive? Are you passive? Where are you at? Sure, I get it. You've got a Jesus bumper sticker on your car. Great. Some of you wear a cross. That's fantastic. Some of you actually own mega amount of Bibles. Not just one Bible. You've got hundreds of them at home, every version. And there are some of you in this room that unbelievably have reached that spiritual level where you have an FBC t-shirt. I mean, come on! But that's not the issue. The issue is, are you following Christ? That's the issue. To have assurance of salvation. Understand, good works are the expression of your new nature. You're created at your new birth. You will not exercise perfect obedience. You will not exercise perfect repentance. You will not exercise perfect living, but good works will be present in and through your life. You can honestly say, and this is in your outline, it costs you nothing to become a Christian because Christ did all the work. It costs you nothing, but it costs you everything to live as one. And that's what we're missing today. We're missing the understanding of what it means to be born again. What it means to be regenerate. And James has been exposing true faith ever since he opened up verse 2 of chapter 1. After he introduces himself, he talks about, listen, you have the capacity to have joy in trials because you know who's in charge. You have the capacity to not blame God or others for your sin, but take responsibility for it because you've been born again. You also have the ability to basically put the word of God in your life and live as a doer of the word. And then we looked at last week that you have now a desire, a real Christian will desire to treat everyone with the love of Christ and not just the rich and not just the celebrity, etc. So what he's going to do now at the apex of this book is cause you and challenge you, examine your faith. Let's put it all down and let you know that you need to recognize is there fruit that's coming out of your regeneration. Otherwise, you're not regenerate. Otherwise, you don't have real faith. And he also wants you to know, I think, from this text, how do you talk to somebody who you're concerned about whether they have saving faith or not? A relative, a friend, a neighbor, a workmate, somebody that you know, I'm going to give you three questions that you can ask them that you need to memorize. You need to memorize because these are the discussion starters that will drive you back to this text. Here they are, point number one in your outline. Let's look at false faith, what they say. False faith, what they say. Verse 14, ask this question, is it possible for you to say that you believe in Christ 
and still not be saved? What's the answer to that question? Yes. And here's the apex of James' letter, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith, what? Save him. He's really concerned, and I'm concerned as well. And every elder here, and every community group leader, and every discipleship leader is concerned. Are you on the bus? We, we want to know that you're going to be in heaven with us. We want to make sure. And James is saying, look, some of you have got some errant thinking here and errant lifestyle. No man can be saved by works. No man can be saved by their works. Amen? It's true. But equally, no man can be saved without producing works. Producing works. The one thing that James cannot stand is profession without practice. James is basically asking in a practical sense, what good is it for you to carry around a license and you don't even know how to drive? Basically, he's saying people call themselves Christians, they go to church, they have a Bible, but James asks, do you have any results that prove to anyone that your confession is authentic? Verse 14, they say, this is what they say, I'm a Christian, they say they have faith. And James is teaching, if somebody claims to have faith in Christ, but his or her life doesn't show the results of faith over time, that faith is most likely phony. That's what he's saying. No one can claim to know Christ, but not produce any works, any fruit, any service. When people say that they have faith, but not works, that is a deadly place to be. I will challenge you one more time. Do not listen to what I say. Listen to what the text says. And James is super pointed here. No one can claim to know Christ that doesn't have works. It's a deadly place. Not only, and write this down, should a Christian manifest works, but James is saying a true Christian will manifest good works. A true Christian will. They'll repent, they'll serve, they'll love others, they'll help, they'll give, they'll share, they'll be obediently submissive, they'll, they'll want God's word, they'll want... Christ's lordship. The New Testament is so clear, and Jesus is so pointed. He says this over and over. Here's just one verse, John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Later on, he burns it. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it back so that it may what? Bear more fruit. Every Christian bears fruit. So James 2, 14. The first question, can, can saving faith exist without resulting works? And the Bible says, what's the answer? Anybody? What is it? No. Let me ask it one more time. Can saving faith exist without resulting works? Answer? No. Notice verse 14. He's talking to believers here. He says, my brethren. What use is it, my brethren? He's most likely talking to fellow Jews who are so repelled by works righteousness. Listen, a Jew coming out of Judaism is going to be pushing away against the idea of you know, of having to keep the law to be saved. And so these Jews most likely were then overreacting to that error and they overreacted saying that works were not even the result of salvation. So James is trying to bring them back to saying, no, regeneration creates a different lifestyle. So in this scenario, in this verse, verse 14, there's a person who claims to have saving faith but no works. And this person is most likely believing in God. He believes in the scriptures. He actually probably believes in the Messiahship of Christ. His doctrine is not on trial here. The accuracy of his faith is not in question. The real issue is, look at verse 14, he has, look at it, he has no works. And that verb, has no works, means he continually has no works. There's no evidence ongoing. He says he's a Christian, but there's nothing that manifests that he's a Christian. No particular type of work is specified. It doesn't say specifically, this is what you got to do. But the context tells us that these works are behavior conforming to God's revealed word that would be pleasing to Jesus Christ. So he says that. Some of the godly works that James has already talked about. He talked about endurance and perseverance. He, he's talked about purity and obedience to the scripture, compassion for the needy last week, and impartiality. Later, after this passage, he'll talk about the control of the tongue. That's a fruit. Humility, truthfulness, patience. There will be fruit. So he makes that statement. Then he concludes verse 14 with this statement. Can that faith save him? The question he's asking is, can that kind of faith 
without works, save him. And what is the answer to that question? Yes or no? No, come on, say it like you mean it. Yes or no? No. You know what? This is not an option here. The Greek text is much more specific than English. And the Greek text will actually tell you that it assumes an answer of no. And that is assumed here. No, it cannot save you, very clearly. A profession of faith that is devoid of godly fruit, service, loving ministry, without works, that kind of faith cannot save a person. Again, regeneration leading to faith, leading to works. If they don't have those works, then they don't have the regeneration. That kind of faith does not birth a Christian. Now hear God, please. This is God's authoritative word. This is not my word. This is what James just said. This is your eternal wake-up call. If you're here, a profession of faith that is devoid of righteous works cannot save a person. It's in your notes. Circle it. Circle it. A profession of faith that is devoid of righteous works cannot save a person. It doesn't matter how you protest. It doesn't matter how, how many Christian excuses you have. Understand what you say is, I'm a Christian, but what James says, if there's no works coming out, there's no Christ being manifested, then you are not. A profession of faith without righteous works, devoid of righteous works, cannot save you. Listen, and it's, the idea is not, okay, uh, I'm a Christian, so I've got to add a few works to my life and start doing some stuff and join the greeting ministry. You know, he's not talking about that. He's saying, look, from your heart of regeneration, from the way I have reborn you, bad English, you are going to manifest good deeds. It's going to be a part of your heart. It's going to be a part of your desire. Not just something you slap on. It's something that you want to do. Jesus was so pointed in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Secondly, fake faith. What do they do? What do they do? Ask this question. The question is, is it possible for you to appear like a Christian yet still not be saved? What's the answer? Yes. Now, the one thing that God can't stand here is profession without practice. So James gives a vivid illustration. He compares faith and works with now expressions of compassion and then deeds of compassion. Are those expressions or words of compassion actually worked out with deeds of compassion? Look what he says in verses 15, 16, and 17. Look at it. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, he's talking about the church here. He's talking about a brother and a sister in the church. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Fake faith is indifferent to the needs of others. Again, a poor believer comes into church, he needs clothing, he needs food, the person with dead faith notices the visitor, sees his need, but doesn't do anything to meet the need. All he does is say some sympathetic words. Fake faith is often hidden under sympathetic words, spiritual words, verbal concern for those in need, but it is no more than a hypocritical sham. The Greek text here paints a picture of a believer who is without sufficient clothing, sufficient food for a long time. So this is someone who's really in desperate need. He's deprived of the necessities of life. Now you understand this. Food, clothing, and shelter are the basic needs that all of us as Christians need to be ready to share with others at any time. Not money, not comforts, not pets, not food for your pet, not cars, but food, clothing, and shelter. And the Bible says that if you don't have food, clothing, and shelter, you're poor. But if you have an abundance of food, clothing, and shelter, you're wealthy. That's how the Bible describes it. And understand, what does the false believer do? That's our question. And number two, what's he do? What does fake faith do? Point number two, the answer is nothing. He just talks. Go in peace, be warm, be filled. This is heartless, exposing an attitude of total disinterest. Total disinterest. You're not interested at all in becoming the channel to meet their need. I just want to say things. Now, you don't see this in English. Let me tell you what's going on in Greek here. It's way stronger. These verbs here, go, be warned, and be filled, are commands. And they're in a voice that communicates the ultimate indifference, the ultimate sarcasm, and the ultimate cruelty. It's very harsh words here. He's saying, in effect, warm and feed yourself, because I'm not gonna. 
He's basically saying, let somebody else satisfy or fill you because I'm not going to help you. Now, now, James asks you and the readers this question, verse 16. Do you see it at the end there? He says, verse 16, what use is, is, is that? And the applied answer is no use at all. It's not real faith. It's totally worthless. Now, underneath this, you need to understand two attitudes that were going on. One Jewish, one Greek. Okay, are you ready? The Jews viewed almsgiving. You know what almsgiving is? Giving money to the poor as a part of their salvation. As a part of their salvation. It was so tied into their salvation that if you didn't give, you weren't a believer. You weren't a Jew. And so these now Christian Jews who are reading this may have overreacted to that saying, we're, we're not going to be saved by works. We're not going to be saved by giving alms to anybody. So they determined to not give alms to anybody. And so therefore, there was that attitude that was underneath this text. The other attitude is the Greek attitude of the sophist philosophers. And I'm not making this up. The sophist philosophers, can't even say it, sounds like falafel, uh, philosophers had this attitude that if somebody came up to them and said, I've got a need, I've got a real need, it would break, are you ready, their serenity. And, and, they, and if they gave much time to it, their emotions would take over, and that would break their serene calmness. So they would give a few words to dismiss them and go on with their life. And both of these attitudes are underneath this text. Both of these, they're responding by not responding at all. So it brings up the question, I had to ask myself this, what moves you emotionally? Now, come on, we're all really weird creatures here. So some of you, when you read a book, you're moved, right? Some of you, when you watch a TV show, you're moved. Some of you have an experience, or you go to a restaurant, and you have some incredible dish, and you're like, oh, I'm so moved by that, right? Uh, you're moved by relationships, you're moved by a lot of stuff. I, I got to admit it, I'll be honest, you're not going to ever see this because I'm so embarrassed by it. I'm moved by sometimes movies. I'm the one of those guys that cries in movies. My wife's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, <laughs> okay, I, I'm just weeping. And it's an animated feature, you know? It's, it's, it's nothing important. <laughs> and so you don't invite me. I'm not coming over. You're not going to see it. But I, I'm just, even in the movie theater, I'm, <laughs> you know, trying to just, just do whatever. We're moved by different things, are we not? Sometimes, some of you, you see the news about people who are in a crisis, and you're moved by that. So what moves you? And the reason I'm asking that is that there are some believers, and I had to ask this of my own heart, they show no concern for a neighbor, for an acquaintance who's in real need, even though they're moved by other stuff. In our artificial, self-centered world, Fantasy is almost more meaningful than reality. Would you agree with that? It's an interesting day that we live. And James is asking a very pointed question about really what moves you? What are you compassionate about? The true church, like the early church in Acts chapter 2 through 5, man, immediately when there was a need, people are selling property. They're doing whatever they can to minister to someone in genuine need. And so what moves you? First, John chapter 3, verse 17, asks the same question. He says, Whatever has, whoever has the world's goods and sees a Christian, a brother, a sister in Christ in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? He's asking that question. And again, 1 John is about assurance. It's proving your faith. So professed compassion without produced compassion is fake. A faith that is fake is when it's nothing but empty verbal claim. Look at verse 17. James makes false faith very clear. Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. This kind of faith that has never seen a practical works will not save you. Any declaration from anybody, a wife, a husband, children, parents, it doesn't matter who, they make a declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life and good deeds is a false declaration. The great theologian John Calvin is with me. He writes very wisely and very succinctly, it is faith alone that justifies. Can I hear an amen to that? 
faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies, he says, can never be alone. Never. When James calls false faith dead, he means useless, ineffective, impotent, instead of living, effective, vibrant, and fruitful. And in verse 17, notice when he says, by itself, being, look at that phrase, circle in your Bible, being by itself, that means alone. And that's just what Calvin said. True saving faith can never be what? Alone. The person with dead faith has an intellectual experience. They have an emotional experience. In his mind, he knows the doctrine of salvation, but he has never submitted to the Lord. In his heart, he has an emotional moment, and he's moved by Christ, but he never surrendered to the Savior. He or she knows the right words to say, but it never works out in works. They feel compassion, but they don't show it. They emotionally affirm Christ, but they don't follow his words. Listen, Christ is too powerful a being to be in your life and not show through your life. Any more than you can grab, and this is my greatest fear at home, grab that 220 current wire. Not, not the 120. And 120 gives you a little pop. 220, you don't forget that, do you? Anybody with me? Okay, maybe three of you. You grab that 220 wire and you're going to react. Listen, when you have Christ in your life, you are going to react. It's going to show. Well, number three then, fictitious faith. What they believe. What they believe, verses 18 through 20. Ask this question. Ask this question. Is it possible for you to know all the right doctrine and still not be saved? What's the answer? Yes. And that's what James is going to say. Dead faith is a shallow conviction. Dead faith has an emotional reaction and recognition of certain truths about God. Fake faith is a belief in God's word without submission to it. So James now addresses anyone who opposes everything he just said in verses 14 to 17. In verse 18, he basically says this. He says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You say, what's he saying here? He's talking to an objector who says, you don't need works. It's just faith. So this objector says faith is a fine thing, works are a fine thing, they're both good manifestations of real Christianity, but the objector doesn't possess both faith and works. The objector here thinks it's okay for one believer to have faith and another believer to have works, but the objector says, you carry on with your works, I'll carry on with my faith, and everybody will be fine, let's accept everyone, sounds like today, and James says, no, I'm going to have none of that. Real saving faith is only proven by works. It is not either faith or works, but it is required that there be both faith than works. One more time, when he regenerates you, gives you a new heart, that new heart issues forth in faith, and that faith will work. His work of regeneration manifests itself. Christ in you, his spirit in you, manifests himself. When there's a faith that there's no works, it's manifesting that you're not regenerate. That's what he's saying. Then the objector will add this. You've heard this argument. Well, I have faith and I have really, really, really good doctrine. Man, I am solid in doctrine. So James says, verse 19, look what he says. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. He shocks his readers, James does. Demons have accurate doctrine. They have really, listen, before they were demons, they were angels. They were part of that incredible race of being that was in God's presence. And then a third of them, according to Revelation 12, rebelled. And they became demons. And they know who God is. They were there. They've seen the Godhead in that sense of seeing. And James shocks them, letting them know that they're terrified by the reality of the truth of God's Word. They not only know the truth, they're terrified and fearful of it. They got one step above most Christians. Paul often confronted demonic forces in his ministry. You saw that also in the Gospels. And in Ephesians 6, he tells us to stand firm in spiritual warfare against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Yet some believers are shocked by the fact that demons have a faith. Demons believe. You say, what do they believe? They're monotheists. They believe in one God, the triune God. They do. They know that Scripture is God's Word. They know that Jesus is God's Son. They know that for a fact. 
They know that he was buried, raised, and atoned for sin. They know that he ascended into heaven, rose from the dead, and is now seated from the, right, uh, from the Father's right hand. They know that there is a literal heaven and a literal hell. They know that there's a thousand-year millennial kingdom where all the end-time events and judgments are going to befall on them and mankind. But all of that orthodox knowledge, as significant as it is, cannot save them. That's James's point. Mere affirmation of doctrinal truth, even reformed doctrine, cannot bring a person to salvation. James is so serious here, he actually becomes a little bit like Chris Mueller. He gets sarcastic and bitey. He does. I'm not making this up. It's right there. Verse 19, he says, you believe God is one? This is the celebrated truth of the Jewish faith, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, God is one, and then the sarcasm, you're doing great, you're doing well, that, that do well there means good job, excellent belief, very sarcastic here. And then he says, in contrast, the demons believe that too, and they're afraid, they shudder over the truth. He's basically saying, if you believe the truth of Deuteronomy 6, 4, that God is one, without obedience to the very next verse, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, then your kind of faith, your doctrinal belief is as worthless as demon belief. Demons believe more. Demons believe and shudder. They tremble. That word for shudder is bristle, tremble, shiver, and it's over fear. They're afraid. They believe God. They're terrified more than intellectually understanding the truth. They are terrified about what awaits them in hell in torment forever. Terrified. They know. In fact, that Greek word shudder means trembling because of fear. Demons are accurate in their theology. They know Christ, they know he's the only way to heaven, they know the reality of heaven and hell, but their belief, their faith, does not save them because they do not submit to Christ. They do not exchange all that they are for all that he is. They do not believe that Christ is their life and that Christ is their first love. Listen, even though demons believe, they don't obey even though they know the truth, they don't repent. Even though they know Christ is Lord, they will not submit. Demons are intellectually convinced of the existence of God. They tremble before Him, but their intellectual belief and even their emotional reactions of trembling does not alter them in the slightest. Their faith is not saving faith because it didn't issue forth in works. It didn't come from a transformed heart. The churchgoers sometimes call themselves a Christian, sometimes those who prayed a prayer of salvation in the past can be enlightened in their mind, mentally, intellectually, understanding the truth. They can even be stirred in their heart over the truth and still be lost forever. That's his point. True saving faith involves something more, something that can be seen, something that can be recognized. What is it? A transformed life. One more time, regeneration precedes faith, faith comes from that, and then that faith issues forth in works. And regeneration is born again. It means you have a new life in Christ. It's not just that you had an intellectual ascent. It's not just that you had an emotional experience. You have been transformed. True salvation transforms you. Can I hear an amen to that? It does. Every single Christian who is a genuine Christian, has been born again and has been regenerated, which means they have a faith that will issue forth in works. Look at how he wraps it up in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is what? Useless. I'm going to ask you the same thing that James asked you. Are you willing to recognize this truth? The word willing there means to act on this. Not just to know about it, not just to have a desire about it, but to lead to action. And James says, if you don't act on this, that's what he's saying. If you're willing, that's what he's saying. If you don't act on this, then you're a fool. You're foolish, which is the idea of empty, defective. It identifies everyone who opposes the truth that true saving faith produces righteousness. James says at the end of this paragraph, this half of the paragraph, 14 to 20, faith 
without works is useless. And useless means fruitlessness. Matthew chapter 7, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and what? Thrown into the fire. Did you catch that? Every tree that does not bear fruit, a fruitless life is a certain proof that you've not been regenerated, then you have saving faith that then issues forth in works every single time, universally. Now, that's what James says. We're only trying to tell you what James says. His passion is the same as many of you. He wants to make sure you're on the bus. He wants to make sure you don't miss heaven. And so he's correcting their errant theology. So let's take this home. Are you ready? Letter A. A life absence of works is a dangerous lifestyle to remain in. I'm afraid for a few of you here and some who might be listening later. It is right. It is sound. It is biblical to ask, is there any fruit in your life? Is there any service, any, any uh, basically ministry towards others, any consistent acts of dependence upon the Spirit, any regular repentance? Can you say that your life, Christ through you, as we just sang about, that He has impacted others through your life so that you either come to Christ or they become like Christ? Is your faith a saving faith or is it a false faith? This first paragraph, half of the paragraph, all about false faith. Is it demonstrated by any good works as a way of life? And again, one more time, you don't tag on the good works, right? Oh, I better start working. Listen, if it's not coming from a heart that wants to, it's not real faith. Even when you fail to, you want to. But it has to come from your heart, a born-again heart. Letter B, a life without fruit lacks assurance of salvation. It lacks assurance of salvation. When God saves you, He secures you. You cannot lose what a powerful God gives you. If He's the one that saved you, you can't lose it. Amen? You can't. Oh, that's one of you. Wow. If you're secure in Christ, can anybody open His hand? No. You are secure. But to know that you are secure requires assurance. And that is a life of dependent, ongoing obedience. One more time. Assurance of salvation is the direction of your life. You're headed toward Christ, you have assurance. The moment you start as a way of life, not a one-time thing, not a day, maybe not a week, but you keep walking away from Jesus, you're going to lose your assurance. You may be secure. You may be not secure. We don't know. You can't know. No one can know. You can't say, well, I prayed a prayer once. No, you can't know if you're moving away from Christ. The only way you can know you're secure is to walk towards Christ, to manifest that faith that will issue forth in good works. That's what the Bible teaches. There is a distinction between security and assurance. A security is with God, and assurance is manifested through your life. Understand it never changes. Now, security is God's decision. Assurance is your direction. Are you following Christ? If you are, then you'll be like Christ, which means a servant. You'll be like Him, which is fruitful. You'll be like Him, ministering to others. You'll be like Christ, doing works of faith. You'll be like Christ, obedient. Now, let me help you, because this helps me as well. Every true Christian in this room has had times of unfaithfulness, sin, and barrenness, especially through crisis. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Yeah, you're looking at your life going, man, I, I, man, sometimes I'm way away from fruit in my life. During those short seasons, you are in danger of losing your assurance of salvation, for during those seasons of unfaithfulness, sin, and barrenness, the blessings of peace and the confidence of the Spirit are forfeited. He's grieved, and therefore you're not assured. Now, security of salvation, that never changes. It's permanent. It's based on the Lord's power to keep those who belong to Him. But assurance is temporal. Assurance can fluctuate. And since assurance is a blessing only guaranteed to those who are obedient to the Lord, it's the direction of your life. There are people here this morning I'm looking at some of them. When they die, in spite of a period of time where they were unfaithful, in spite of times when they really struggled and had a crisis of faith, in spite of that, their entire life was Christ. Their entire life was the manifestation of fruit. Oh, they had difficult seasons. They had hard times. But the whole pattern of their life was that they love Christ. 
imperfectly, savagely imperfect, would you say? Up and down and around, and yet, when they die, we'll know where they go. We'll know that they're home in heaven. But there are a few here this morning, when they die, we will not know. Because faith without works is a false faith. And there'll be a massive uncertainty. A claim, but nothing to back it up. And let her see. A life missing good deeds. You don't need to run around and start doing good deeds and join the greeting ministry. What you need to do is recognize to be given the gift of salvation. To be given the gift of salvation. One more time. Hear this, please. Don't just fill in the blank. Listen to this. It is faith alone that justifies. Amen? Faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, no works, but faith that justifies is never alone. It manifests itself in works. Salvation is a gift from God. When he saves you, he transforms you internally so that even imperfectly when you're flat on your face, you still want to get back up and say, I still want to please him. I still want to follow him. I still want to serve him. I still want to obey him. And if that is not your heart, then would you cry out to have him give you a new heart? A new heart that is regenerated, that will be faithful, that will issue forth in works and manifest Christ. Christ is free to receive. Salvation is free. And when you have Christ, you will have everything. Everything. And he will be your everything. And it costs you nothing to become a Christian, but it costs you everything to live as one. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of James. We thank you that you are one who speaks directly and bluntly. And we pray that those who would not be saved would be drawn. And those of us who are would be thankful that it was you who drew us, you who called us, you who saved us, you who sanctify us. And now we're seeking to be faithful, to be dependent upon you for have you work through us Christ in us, manifesting himself, as imperfect as every vessel, including myself in this room is, we thank you that we can see you through us, and we want to see more of you and less of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.